0: Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast, I'm your host Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast where we explore the sometimes terrifying, sometimes exciting advances in biotechnology and how they affect human society from Dakar to Detroit. We are about global health and human rights. If you are a regular subscriber, thank you. We hope you're enjoying the shows. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. You can subscribe at Facebook and Twitter at ShotArm Podcast, like us, and if you do, give us five stars. This week we witness the clash of two worlds – the possible and the struggle. We are confronted with the insane disparity between a world ripe with potential at a swipe of a smartphone and a world that is fighting for basic access to a 50-year-old contraceptive technology and links to HIV prevention. We meet Sean Howell, co-founder of the gay social media site Hornet and chair of the LGBT Foundation. With all the concerns about privacy and political hacking, social and digital media may seem a curious place to disclose your HIV status, that you are U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable, or that you are on PrEP. Yet that is exactly the future Sean is building. Join us as we ride the insanely fast-moving wave of technology that will affect the health and wellness of everyone. But just beforehand, I catch up with South African HIV and women's rights activist Yvette Raphael. She joins us from Durban, South Africa. You'll recall that we met Yvette in the third episode of the podcast, and she's in Durban for the South African AIDS conference. She gives us a direct update on the results of the largest trial ever of just under 8,000 women across Eastern and Southern Africa, looking at whether different contraceptive options affect their risk of HIV transmission. The trial is called ECHO, and the bottom line is that a woman's risk of getting HIV is not impacted by whichever contraceptive she takes. This is huge news and can't be ignored by governments and funders it must transform the way HIV and family planning work together, particularly across sub-Saharan Africa. So that, welcome back to A Shot in the Arm.
1: Excited to be here. I don't know, is it good morning? But yes, it, um, I'm excited to be here and excited to give some clarity and talk about the results and what they mean to women on the ground.
0: So what basically are the results of ECHO?
1: The trial was designed to actually provide high-quality evidence whether the there is a potential risk in association of between HIV and contraceptives and what it basically means uh, the the results mean right now is that there's no uh you know difference in HIV acquisition between the three methods which was the copper IUD the DMPA and um the Jadelle implant so two of those methods are hormonal and then the IUD is non hormonal so we, uh, we we welcome the results, we welcome the clarity, because for many years we know the question around uh, Depo-Provera is 50 years old, I mean almost older than me. And um, the question around HIV, AIDS acquisition and Depo-Provera or contraceptive is about a 12 year journey for some of us. So we we are here, we have the results, we trust the results. We believe the results, and we it gives us a springboard to start working.
0: And you were on the community advisory board for this trial, right?
1: Yes, I was on the global community advisory board, which is for which consists of women across the globe. Like I said, uh, different um, lifespans of the question. So this had a uh, you know women from the US, women from the United Kingdom, and across the globe uh, on this advisory board with different experiences and different reasons to be part of it. So we were basically a well-organized group of women with our experiences and expertise uh, watching the trial and to ensure everything happens. According to you know the greater participatory model, where how the community was involved, and to ensure this constant you know, checking on the research and how the researchers are handling this. We're handling this very sensitive issue. The GCAG was part of, you know, some of the documents, we uh, formulating some of the research documents because we know this was a very personal study. Contraceptives is something women use. And it was also the one sensitive part that I don't think everybody talks about. When we do research, is to bring a product in. So with this study, it was a product that people were already using. So we needed to thread very, very carefully with women in such a sensitive issue around something they put into their bodies already and there being a question.
0: So the bottom line is that a woman's risk of getting HIV is not negatively impacted by whichever contraceptive she takes. But this doesn't mean we carry on as business as usual. Why is this a call to action for you?
1: It cannot be business as usual, basically because of the high incident rates of HIV that we saw in this study. It is important for us to note that as much as Policymakers, governments are talking about an end to AIDS, this study shows us that we are we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing, especially in the four countries where the, the research happened. So we need to start thinking now of how do we uh you know accelerate women's prevention choices of HIV and AIDS? How do we accelerate the integration of uh contraceptives and And HIV and AIDS programs, but also to remember that women are not a program. So one woman goes into a healthcare facility seeking uh, sexual and reproductive health uh, services, so she needs to be able to get that at the same clinic, in the same facility, at the same visit. Uh, we can no longer separate these so we need to ensure that young people and women access HIV prevention services but it's also a call out for us to do more to give women options and method mix method mix ensuring that there's different uh, contraceptives available for women that suits their needs and that are also that also have less um, side effects but also when we talk about HIV prevention we know the only, only HIV prevention that women really have uh, power over is PrEP. And in countries like South Africa, it is still something that we're not seeing our government committed to. And it's understandable. They can hardly provide enough treatment for for everyone. So they they, they, they would then obviously let behind around the issues of of prep, but we're not going to accept that. What we're doing right now as women is to to continuously demand that our government does more for, for young women. It cannot be business as usual.
0: I mean it, it seems to me that there are three issues and I think you've you've touched on them. The first is But what this trial tells us is that women actually don't get to choose what contraceptive they're on. And we shouldn't get the impression that women can choose which of the three they want. The sobering fact is that it's it's largely luck that um, the women participating in this trial were able to get any contraceptive at all. the second thing is that, and again, you mentioned this, that funders and policymakers can no longer shy away from investing in contraceptives as part of a comprehensive HIV prevention strategy. I mean, how many times have you and I heard, privately and publicly, um, public health officials say, well, the data's not clear. We don't want to tread too heavily on this. We better shy away until we know more. There's no question of that. We now know what, what the data are and what we need to do. The third thing, and, and I really want to get your thoughts on this, the very troubling rate of HIV infection among those just under 8,000 women. It's another indicator that we aren't seeing the end of AIDS, far from it. We simply aren't addressing HIV in young women and girls. The uh, infection rate was 4%, and WHO states that if infections are above 3%, that is to be considered a substantial a substantial risk in the population. How did you see the um, HIV infection rates in this study?
1: Matter of fact, uh, is that more than 600 women, 300 women, three, uh, 367 women were infected during this two and a half year trial. So that is very concerning out of two, uh, 2000. It is that is why we say. We welcome the results, we accept the results, we trust the results. However, it is not good news. It, it cannot be good news when women go to healthcare facilities and are not able to get... Uh, Contraceptive methods. It's 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 a problem. It's, it's it's a problem that women go to healthcare facilities and they cannot access HIV and AIDS medication and 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 prevention methods. So for for us, like I said, it's important that we use this. Remember, uh, the five million U.S. dollars was invested in this trial. So we did not back this trial as women, as activists, so that somebody can get a pet on their back, job well done. Because the answer is, uh, there is no substantial difference in risk. So what we want to see is how this, we can use the evidence. And most times we are asked for evidence, so this is our evidence. We use the evidence to ensure Things change for women. And when I talk about things to change, is we have to look at the fact that women do not have an HIV prevention method currently that works for them. We've done so much for 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 other, you know, other groupings, key populations, sex workers, all of that. We know all women are sex workers. (laughs) But (laughs) we need to start talking about the fact that. that We need to start talking about the fact that in this case, um, we're not not reaching the women most at risk. And in South Africa, it's women 15 to 24.
0: So what are the next steps? What are the actions that we need to take and who needs to take them?
1: Three things comes to mind for me, and first of all, it's 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 the WHO after the results. We know we're going through going to go through the re- review uh, process, the guidance for a, a, a way forward. And as you know, and were part of the women's demand to be on that review committee. In most cases, and most time, is that um, we put scientists and experts on these committees to make decisions global long lasting decisions about women's sexual and reproductive health rights who are not the women so in that review committee first of all has to has to be women we want women on the and especially women from the global advocacy group to be global uh, community advisory board, to be on on the review committee. So that's one of the things. And then we will see the change because if we do not insist on that, scientists will sit in a room and decide on the way forward. So women should be on that uh, uh, review committee. Secondly, the way forward is also around continuous demand and investment in, in contraceptives development. We, ha- we cannot have a, a case that women have so little option uh, uh, options around contraceptives. And in countries like South Africa, it's a fact that we continuously say women prefer Depo-Provera, women choose Depo-Provera. But if you do not have options and choices, Uh, And you say, I prefer it, it's really unfair. So we need to look at how we ensure that the South African government and other governments in Africa, Zambia, Kenya, which is also the case, expand method mix, give women a, a choice. And what we've seen in the study is that the women stayed on the method for throughout the study. And the randomization was the computer would choose a method for you. So that notion and that narrative that women continuously um, choose depot is no longer one that we'd like to hear because clearly women, if given a choice, will choose a, met- a different method than Depo-Provera and would adhere to it and stay on to it.
0: Yvette, this is both sobering and yet very inspiring at the same time. Please keep on fighting the good fight, and we look forward to welcoming you back to a shot in the arm in the very near future. And now, my interview with Sean Howell. Be prepared for a phenomenal roller coaster up and down the insanely fast moving world of technology that will affect the health and wellness of everyone. Sean, Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thank you. Happy to be here. So how would you
2: explain what Hornet is? What does it do and what are its aims? Hornet is a 25 million user gay social network. It's available in essentially every country in the world in 17 languages. And the uh, space is really a safe space for gay men to come together, to meet each other, to have conversations, to find romance, to find new friends, to engage in uh, common interest. Uh, and we're also a media portal, so we publish uh, news articles every day on the most important uh, c- critical conversations of the day, as well as pop culture and anything else that might interest uh, men all over the world. And so that's published in Chinese, in Portuguese, in French, in Spanish, in Russian. Uh, with on-the-ground uh, editors. So uh, your story, how did
0: you get to be where you are today? How did you co-create Hornet, and, and, and where did it go from there?
2: I think it's a surprise to uh, many people, including myself. I uh, came out of uh, finance. I was an analyst, and at the time, there used to be many uh, large gay online platforms that existed on the web. And uh, for a variety of reasons, after the first tech bubble... A few of those companies imploded, and then shortly after that, smartphones came into existence. So we're talking from 2002 to 2009, and during that period of time, the online forums that were uh, group, one-to-many types of conversations versus one-to-one shrunk. So uh, as dating took off, the online uh, communities were getting smaller, and I just thought that that left uh, an opportunity and I missed that experience. And so uh, since that didn't exist in the mobile world, we decided to create it. So the idea behind Hornet was that it was a friendly, safe space for people to be themselves.
0: And something much more than just, if you'll, excuse me, using the phrase, hooking up. You have, I think in large part, created a sense of community that is that is digital, that is virtual.
2: The thing I will add to that is uh, one of the things that we really work on is using software and the design of the product to help people express themselves. And I think that... Uh, Uh, that is an important part of the community. And in some parts of the world, the only place that you can do that safely is on Hornet.
0: At A Shot in the Arm, we we look at how biomedical advances shape societies. But in each episode, we keep coming back to the need for, let me call it, process simplification in design, implementation, and delivery of uh, pretty much every aspect of, of human life. And and it seems to me that that is the treasure that uh, technology offers for expanding access to quality health. How would you describe that opportunity?
2: Well, I think it's it, it's larger than I had imagined, and partly, you know, I went from being an analyst in uh, in finance, and so working for a large institution, going down to uh, working on a consumer product that's really about. Uh, reducing the friction for users and creating user delight. And when you do that, you create something that we call, uh, you know, your viral coefficient. How, how quickly do you grow? And um, th- I think that's the best measure of if we're doing a good job. Are people telling their peers about us and having that be the way that we win users? And I think if you think about the public health space, there's a lot of sp- Places where uh, someone thinks the way I did when I was an analyst versus a technologist working in the consumer on a consumer product, where every day I'm thinking, how do I make this easier and how do I make my user happier? And anything that I built that it was a major um, importance to me, I have to let go if that doesn't work the way that the user want wants it to, and I have to rethink that problem. And public health, I think, has we built, we've gone the other direction. Anytime we want to uh, learn something, we make it harder for that consumer, and we collect another piece of data, or we create a new door. And so now, I think, is a time where uh, uh, software and this way of doing business has come far enough that we can introduce that to public health.
0: I, I love that phrase. Bringing viral delight, I don't think anyone in public health would have ever have considered that that's what they were doing. But from what I see of you, you view the patient as the ultimate consumer. They should have access to the highest, highest standards of product or services at the lowest prices. And if they don't have the products they need or want, they should be free to go elsewhere. and And I think, as you pointed to to it, this is not something that translates easily into the traditional world of public health. In fact, in many ways, you know, the customers have been physicians, doctors, and the objective has been to tell patients who are suppliant or supplicants of the consumers, the doctors, that you'll do things in a certain way and you will like it or you'll get ill. So, um, you know, I guess my question for you is whether the does the traditional public health world have still any viability? Or do you see it as being ripe for absolute and fundamental disruption?
2: I don't see how it could evolve, but I, I think there's an opportunity for it too. So I would err more on the side that's probably going to be disrupted. Because I think a good analogy would be to think about old-style television uh, versus Netflix, And so old-style television, uh, the programming was chosen for you. You sit down, you watch NBC. They have their lineup for the season. They make you watch some commercials. And then uh, on Netflix, you have all the genres. You have years of television built into there, and you can watch it whenever you want. And if you think about health and being able to access it, one, whenever you want, I think The physicians listening will cringe at the idea of this, but essentially people should be able to access health whenever they want, whenever they need it. It should be as easy as ordering an Uber or ordering something from Amazon. And uh, that is when people will start to be more proactive. If you think about the ways that uh, an HMO uh, describes the ways it's going to do cost savings, we we can empower that and double down on that and find more and more ways for people to have a sense of autonomy and ownership uh, around their health. And I think that's making the the health product at the end of the day easier, uh, more accessible, but most importantly, mo- more enjoyable to the consumer.
0: I mean, again, I love the concept of healthcare is enjoyable. I
2: do you know, I
0: don't think that that comes into the traditional public health discourse at all. But um, just to challenge you a bit, the argument that we might get is that, you know, TV to Netflix is a very different species from um, being prescribed medications for diseases or for, um, or, or, or for prevention, um, uh, hypertension, for example. And that while the Patient, the consumer can educate themselves to some degree, they're always going to need the doctor to provide that degree of technical uh, insight and, yeah, even direction that they're not going to be able to provide themselves. Um, how would you
2: comment on that and how would that fit into the worldview that you see coming? Happy to answer that. If you think about medicine, some things are easy and some things are very hard. And for things that are very hard, those answers might not be available today. Someday maybe our iPhone can also uh, take an x-ray, but today it can't. So, uh, but there are things that we can do and access easier, and we don't need to go to the hospital, which means we don't need as much uh, built infrastructure for these kind of low-cost, low-risk needs. Uh, And so the more we can meet those in the most cost-effective, delightful ways uh, that might uh, reduce hypertension or increase uh, you know, diabetes adherence. Those things are possible. But I'll jump to a more extreme example of uh, genetic medicine. And uh, you, if you're in a high-risk category uh, for, for sexually ter- transmitted diseases, you might think about uh, whether you have immunity for HIV. And I have never once been offered that by any Uh, hospital I've ever gone to from when I was in Seattle when I moved to San Francisco and have access to some of the best medicine uh, in the world but 23 and me offered to tell me if I if I'm immune to HIV in my home Uh, I paid for it it came in the mail I sent it back in the mail that's pretty sophisticated and uh, I I think there's a, a, a certain amount of pleasure that came from that experience and that is a health genetic product built from a user delight perspective.
0: but the idea of um i mean and let let's be clear we there's a tiny, tiny micro percentage of, of people, and we've we've seen them mostly, I guess, um, in East Africa who have somehow been able to remain HIV free despite um, what seem to be extensive exposures what what you're proposing and what Hornet is doing, is really taking the lessons learnt of science, of uh, U equals you. Um, undetectable is untransmissible. If you're taking your medications for HIV or HIV positive, you're taking your medications, you basically are no longer infectious. And you're combining that with the opportunities of pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, to create um, an experience for your users where... Um, Basically, you're exploding the stigma of HIV to the gay community, something we've had a really, really, it's really been hard for us to do so over the last 30 years. And, and by embracing these scientific advancements and in getting your user community to embrace and be open about them, um, y- y- you seem basically to be wanting to set people free. Um, how does that work for you in, in
2: practice with Hornet? There's a few things that we do to approach these issues. Uh, one, we try to make it very easy for men who are HIV positive to self-disclose. And that might seem like something that's kind of divorced from reality when you think about uh, the fact that there is HIV stigma. However, the when we talk to our users uh, who are HIV positive, they wanted a way to be able to let people know their status. So that didn't come up later in the conversation. So we just made that very easy. And users have the option to disclose or not disclose, but a huge percentage of HIV positive men would rather have that come up before they engage in a long conversation with someone. Uh, and so that's right up front. Uh, and then the there's a, a few other elements that just are kind of important. And that is, uh, you might not remember when your last HIV exam was, and so we help people uh, put their bet put when they remember getting their HIV test, and then we keep track of that and we re- remind them, and they can update whether they did that or not, or whether they do not know. And these have been uh, things that we built as experiments, and they've just. Remained popular for users, and we just tried to kind of design that in a natural way, the same way they would put uh, what city they live in. They can put their HIV status, and it just becomes an upfront thing that um, is sometimes a conversation starter. Yeah, and I think I think for many of us who've been in this
0: for all of our adult lives, that kind of disclosure, analysis, worldview is something we're, we're, we're really not not used to or comfortable with. And you know, basically, we need to uh, be a bit humble and let people use technology and um, explore things in the way that they feel comfortable with. I, I really wanted to explore with you your views on self-testing um the idea that you could order um a, a DIY hiv diagnosis kit um on the internet or wherever it arrives at your home you test yourself you get the uh, the very basic yes or no uh, and then you make the decision about whether you connect into care um and again for a lot of the uh, more traditional public health folks um or the traditional AIDS folks, this is a real challenge for them to get their heads around. Um, How do you see it? And how do you see the potential of uh, self-tests driving further away the stigma and discrimination associated with HIV?
2: So if we think back to that question about gay men disclosing their HIV status, whether it's positive or negative, I think one of the interesting things that we learned is that people really... Uh, want more information about that. So if we look at, say, an 18-year-old living in Thailand, or if we look at a 25-year-old man looking in Indonesia, they actually don't have a lot of access to this kind of basic information. So when someone puts in their profile that they're HIV positive or HIV negative or HIV undetectable, uh, or they don't know their status, we actually have that be an interactive part of their profile. So they can go and get more information, whether it's on h- how and where to get an HIV test, what PrEP is, what undetectable means. We make all those things uh, clickable so you can expand it and learn more. And w- and if you think about how easy that is, that's how we should then, the next step is how do they go and get tested? And we need to make that as easy as possible. And there's there shouldn't be any barriers where we make them go to a government hospital uh, or a clinic uh, that's during their working hours. You know, uh, many many clinics around the world aren't open after work. Uh, And so we just create these impossible barriers where the costs for that person to go and get tested uh, are so high. And then if you put HIV stigma on top of that, uh, it's no wonder that we have... 40% 40% of people who are HIV positive in the world, not knowing that they are. And I think that is evidence to say what we have been doing isn't working.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's to me, there's very clear evidence that given the f- stable number of new infections each, each year globally, what we're doing is not working. Um, and so I'm very excited about these new ways of looking at the problem and how technology can 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 help us. I mean, I go back to uh, my first HIV test, which was in the late 1980s. I mean, the first thing is that the extensive counselling before the test was, are you really sure you want to get tested? Are you really sure you want to know the result? Then, of course, I had to wait three weeks for the test. And during that time, because I'd come for the test, um, the, the public health trappings around me, counselling and support would say, well, you need to assume you're positive. Um, you get the result three weeks later oh it's negative off you go and here's a pack of condoms so the whole dynamic has has fundamentally changed but how far do you go Uh, what is what are your thoughts about the ideas of uh, the drug that is used for pre-exposure prophylaxis prep being available without prescription that's something that's being discussed um, here in the bay area at the moment
2: I think that uh, the downsides uh, don't outweigh the up, the positive impact that that can make. And I think the science shows that that's an effective treatment. So we need to take that, respond the way we have responded with uh, making condoms available without having to go to the pharmacist and ask for them, and move on. So th- this, this is a decision that's too late. And... Um, to me, that's not a long conversation.
0: Do you know, for me, it is a longer conversation. And I'm, I just want to, to push you, Sean, a little bit. Um, two things. First of all, the the medication that we use for pre-exposure prophylaxis is exactly the same medication that is used in, the, uh, in a good number of the uh, combination treatments if you are HIV positive. So... If you are concerned about being HIV positive, or you're concerned more generally about HIV, um, you might, um, you know, what might be easier to say, well, let's just get a a month's supply of PrEP, or what have you. And the risk could be that if you don't connect yourself into services um, sooner uh there is th- that there is the risk that you might perhaps find yourself developing um uh, a resistant strain of hiv that is to say that the the impact of the pre-exposure prophylaxis isn't enough to clear the virus from your system. Um, So that's one concern I have. And the other concern is that um, I think what has been really terrific about PrEP is that it's connected people into a broader system of prevention and awareness services. A lot, for example, that organizations like yours provide online, but nonetheless, it's a connection into those. And, um, you know, Maybe I'm too old, who knows. But the idea of PrEP being connected to regular testing seems to me so fundamental. So uh, th- those are my, let's say, ambiguities, uncertainties about um, a sort of an unrestricted, unprescribed uh, availability of PrEP.
2: Well, I think you answered the question. It It's an access point, and it gets people into an HIV prevention system that's the best science And technology that we have for prevention to date and uh, that's been shown super effective and i think that if you say you want to create all these barriers for that then uh that's just um one not how consumers behave uh if kaiser makes it so hard where you have to go and uh, get your liver tested every time you want to refill your PrEP prescription, people will just buy it uh, from overseas, and we see that. So we have gone the opposite direction with this drug, and we need to find ways to, to make it easier. And as those risks develop, uh, we can address them. But we know that this is a costly virus that infects someone for life, and if we can use this new tool that is easy to manufacture, it's not made out of some rare material, then we should be scaling this up. No, I think this
0: is a, a very important conversation and one I have no doubt you and I will con- continue. Uh, for for me, the bottom line is that this is happening, so we just better get on board and make sure that it is something that is uh, viral delight rather than, rather than terror. You've also campaigned and developed ways of using technology to fight for human rights, particularly those of LGBT. Uh, why is this important to you, and how have you been able to exploit this technology?
2: With our 25 million users, none of them have full equality. And whether that's in the United States or in Ghana or uh, uh, in a country like Russia, uh Uh, The experience and stress of that is immense. And one in five youth in America, LGBT youth in America, will try to commit suicide before they graduate high school. And those are just hard numbers. But the impact on uh, their well-being, their economics, um, uh, their access to health, those are all kind of driven by the degree of discrimination that they face. And that can be when there's laws in place that criminalize same-sex relationships. Um, But even when we move past those, we still have to shift society and family views of openness and acceptance. And the world's come a long ways, but we clearly have a a much further path to go.
0: I mean, when you talk, I get a glimpse from you of a... uh, a vision of democracy, of democratization that sort of supersedes the traditional left versus right. Um, your interest in blockchain technology is an example of that. And I'll ask you to explain for us ignoramuses what blockchain is in a minute. But, but first, do you see the exploitation of technology as primarily um, political or commercial in nature?
2: I think in some ways it's like a tool. It's the way that people are communicating. And that is uh, the same as freedom of expression. And so while there are consumer elements to it, it's just kind of the reality of the times we live in. And that is exciting from a Commercial sense, but it's also exciting from a political sense. And then there's a way to engage people and have them brought in, or there's a way to have government transparency that's better. So I think the, those things are things that we're seeing. We're trying to deal with some of the n- negative sides of them, as well as embrace the opportunities. So if you think about the recent uh, GDPR regulation in Europe that's regulating advertising, while at the same time, we're building things that really cater to us individually and make our lives easier, there's a little bit of tension there. But I think the technology is just getting cheaper and cheaper to use. And that means that there's going to be more exciting ways we can use that for good. So tell us a bit about blockchain
0: technology. You're exploring it at the moment to uh, enable and empower uh, gays and lesbians around the world. What does it involve? and, And how is it going to blow apart the sort of Normal senses of what a government can or can't control.
2: I'm excited to answer that question because I think the way that many people think about that uh, is from uh, this idea that's uh, Hard and complicated and they're afraid of it. And so rather than tell you exactly um, How blockchain works? uh, There's plenty of places you can go on the internet and watch a video of a cartoon that explains it far better than I can on radio uh, I'll say this, many people listening somehow are using a smartphone or their computer and they are downloading this podcast, but they don't know the internet protocols that are being used to run this podcast or to send their emails. And blockchain is a complicated technology, much like the internet was seemed complicated in its early days, but it's now something we all use. And blockchain is going to offer the same kind of benefits and ubiquity uh, that much of the software in the world has. Uh, It's really sophisticated. It's an opportunity because it allows for encryption, it allows for sharing of information, it allows people to have control, uh, and it provides a higher degree of security. And there's more and more transactions that are moving online. Uh, There's more and more personal information that's moving online. And blockchain allows the owner of that information to keep the control of it. And we call those their keys. And for LGBT people, this is just another new thing we can use uh, that also, at the same time, we need to keep LGBT people safe. And so in my mind, the f- the future uh, for LGBT people includes something with blockchain. And my hope is that People listening and LGBT software engineers, uh, we get ahead of this. And because in the past, we've sometimes seen technology uh, not used to help the community, but used to hurt the community. And what I work on now is uh, trying to move the LGBT movement forward and embrace this technology, advance equality. Uh, and one of the ways I'm doing that is. Uh, using uh, the LGBT token, which is a way to uh, monetize the commercial space of the pink dollar, create autonomy, and with a $4.2 trillion uh, pink uh, economic system, uh, there's a big opportunity to uh, not rely on aid, but rely on ourselves to fund the needs of our community. A comment that
0: might come back to you, which is, again, very much de rigueur at the moment is, well, in, in sharing this information about us, isn't there a risk that we're going to get hacked? Isn't there a risk that a evil anti-gay government might find information out about us and then use that to persecute us?
2: Uh, there's always risk with technology, but the, the exciting thing that has people interested in blockchain is the ways that it m- mitigates that and that uh, it's putting that kind of privacy in the forefront and the ownership of things. And really, it's building trust. And so you have uh, a way of verifying the information that you have uh, and uh, being able to take back anything that you've shared. So uh, there's going to be limitations, but there's just some opportunities that exist for the community.
0: And much better than it's that it's in your hands rather than perhaps the hands of certain Europe, Eastern European governments.
2: Well, I, what I will say is that the way blockchain works is that it's autonomous. And so it's really about a decentralized ecosystem. And so I'm building the decentralized LGBT ecosystem. And so that's not in my hands. It's in the hands of the LGBT people. And that's what has me super excited is the fact that I've built something that's for the community, that's owned by the community, uh, and we haven't seen anything like that before. And only blockchain allows that. And it goes back to this idea that we need to understand
0: and be informed about what the technology is and and how we use it. Um, Very often, uh, we rely on narratives coming from the media or from entertainment. Uh, to sort of set the overall stage of how we view things. And I'm thinking of, I don't know if you've watched the latest season five of Black Mirror, but um, underneath that series is uh, a sense, a narrative that big data is not only ubiquitous, uh, but a menace. Um, And it struck me that that narrative could be a little bit similar to that that we've developed for the pharmaceutical industry, that... Um, it's always bad, uh, and it's always screwing us over. Does this narrative concern you at all?
2: Yes. Big data by authoritarian government scares me. Big data by a uh, monopoly corporation scares me. And that's what blockchain works to remedy. And that's because the the individuals own their individual information and their identity. They control that. And then the entire ecosystem is built in a decentralized way.
0: Would you consider Vladimir
2: Putin to be a genius or just lucky? Political science is not my expertise, but I would say that being an underdog like he is, he always has an advantage and that he can create a small menace of a problem and have a huge reward on it. And what's messy is uh, when you deal with with democracy... And states that embrace that, and sometimes it seems like ours uh, in the United States currently doesn't. Uh, uh, we still do, and he has tools to outsmart us and gain more from one-up sh- one-upmanship. Uh, unfortunately, that has come at a cost to his people, and uh, an easy way to see that is the rising HIV rates in his country, and that's completely unnecessary and avoidable. And if uh, uh, I th- if he had their best interests at heart, we would see that um, battleship being turned in a different direction.
0: And with that kind of authoritarian dictatorship, there are always, you know, cracks in the wall. If you were, and uh, it's interesting that our narrative, looking at the fragility of Western democracies, doesn't look at the fragility of the society that that he has created. Um, one last question, Sean. Um, what are you most excited about, from your worldview about uh, biopharmacology and technology advances?
2: I think that uh, much like we see the ubiquity of smartphones throughout Africa now, uh, people will be able to access health and their health information in a way that becomes more accessible. And that can only drive down costs and create higher quality care. Some days I think of that in a negative way, that why isn't this happening now? But really, I see that as a huge opportunity and it excites me. And that's why I'm motivated to do the things that I'm doing.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. You are a shot in the arm. Thanks for having me. Well, the worldviews of Sean and Yvette could at first glance be wildly different, but they do share a common passion and determination to disrupt the status quo, and are both committed to easier access to HIV prevention. It's worth noting that none of the contraceptive devices used in the ECHO trial are particularly new or innovative, and indeed the depo provera hormonal injection that Yvette rails against has been around for 50 years. We need to look forward to the day, hopefully soon, when women have the choice to insert a safe, easy-to-use microbicide ring. One that A. can be adapted to prevent HIV infection and B. be adapted for contraception and family planning. The point is a woman chooses and she has access to the most effective technology. Sean is excited about a world where PrEP is on demand without the restrictions of a prescription beforehand, and yes, that is a powerful vision. But just having a month's supply of this little blue pill delivered privately to your home is not enough. It is an entry point into HIV testing, prevention and treatment. As much as to PrEP, we need to know our status before and during. We do not want to be one of the 40% who do not know their HIV status, who start PrEP without a diagnosis and then basically are exposed to bad, old-fashioned treatment of the late 1990s with the risk of developing resistant strains of HIV. My view is that the greatest innovation we need is simpler, more accurate and accessible HIV testing. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to Yvette and Sean. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We love to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions on topics and people, give us a shout on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you to Eric Espera from Newsdoc Media for producing the show. And thank you to Chic and Earth, Wind and Fire for your inspiring and disruptive music from the late 70s and early 80s. You transformed the spirit of this English child. And well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again for listening and have a great week, everyone na na na, na.